Welcome, everybody, to This Podcast Has Autism. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. It's Marcy, one of the hosts here with my husband, Bran. Today, we'll be, we'll be discussing eczema and immune disorders. These are two topics, but they kind of go together. So people with autism are 1.6 times more likely to have skin conditions like eczema. Studies have shown a possible link between autism and autoimmune disorders. More research needs to be done, but one study suggests that parents with autoimmune disorders may be more likely to have children with autism. When autism comes with skin conditions, it may be the result of an autoimmune disorder passed on by a parent or existing food allergy that is causing dry skin, rashes, or other skin issues. Due to the connection between the immune system and autism, as described in other conditions, autism is often accompanied with another immune disorder. Current research points to a family history of immune disorders when autism is present in a person. Other research suggests that expecting mothers who experience infections or inflammation during pregnancy may be more likely to have a child with autism or other disorders of brain development. This again falls back to the connection of the immune system and its link to autism. And this came from AppliedBehaviorAnalysisEDU.org. So this topic is uh, really hits home for us because our youngest son, he suffers with uh, severe eczema. And when he was younger, uh, we tried so many different lotions and ointments and different types of treatments to get his skin under control. We saw doctor after doctor, uh, allergists, and uh, just all kinds of different uh, specialists and stuff. And it, and it's it's crazy how, how much we had to go through just to get his skin under control. And we still have moments, like right now, his skin is so bad. Like he's been scratching at it, biting at his hands and stuff. I mean, he has open wounds because of it. It's, it's bad stuff. Yeah, and then sometimes he gets infections where um, the little pus pockets on his hands will, will become infected. And, and then we'll take him to the doctor and they'll pop him. And then we'll have to wrap up his hands like mummies. And just so that they can heal, you know. And it's And then sometimes he takes bleach baths just so that, like, you know, the... Um, it disinfects the, everything, cleans everything yeah. really good. All the dirt can can get off of his skin so that it can heal properly, and then we we use a steroid cream and yeah, it's it's quite a ride with eczema. <laughs> and some of his eczema is, is due to food allergies and, and other allergies that he has, so he doesn't get the anaphylactic. Uh, what's the word? Anaphylactic. Um, yeah. He doesn't get that, but he gets eczema. I mean, we have seen him get the get the severeness, but it's only happened like one time. And luckily, we were in the doctor's office when it happened. Yeah, he was doing a, a baked egg challenge, and he ended up failing it. But, um, but yeah, we were there probably in the doctor's office for like, I don't know, three, four hours. Yeah. All right, well, now let's hear the interview. Today we have uh, Bill Wong with us today. He has a doctorate in occupational therapy 
He's been working in the field for six years in California. He is autistic. He's a two-time TEDx speaker. He's done TEDx in Grand Forks in 2015, TEDx Youth at Alamitos Bay in 2017. Uh, Bill Wong, I'm going to turn time over to you to introduce yourself. Sure, no problem. So my name is Bill Wong. As the host has mentioned, I've been an occupational therapist for six years. Uh, the school I graduated from was the USC Chan Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy. So I got my master's from there in 2011 and my clinical doctorate degree in 2013. I was born in Hong Kong. I came to the U.S. when I was 11 years old. I am fluent in Cantonese and Mandarin in addition to English. I was diagnosed with autism when I was 25 years old. In that point of time, that means it was between my first and second year of my occupational therapy school education. Uh, right now, I am currently serving as the representative rep of California for the American Occupational Therapy Association. And this right now is my second year of my three-year term. And I have also been very involved in profession as well. I've also served in another position in the American Occupational Therapy Association. I have also been presenting globally in domestic and international conferences, mostly about autism, but I do change up a bit sometimes from social media. And of course, now TEDx has now been my baby, as I'm also a curator for a brand new event called TEDx Amesa Park. And so now in terms of my field, like I'm sort of the unofficial expert in terms of TEDx talks now because I can give my peers tips on how to get on. And now through my experience as a curator, I am now providing tips on how occupational therapy students and practitioners can get on as well as hosting one of these events. And right now I will say I'm working in the skilled nursing facility setting or for those of you who are not familiar from overseas, in Australia, equivalent is like an aged care system, or in the UK, it also can mean like a step-down unit per se. What, what is occupational therapy, and how long does it take for anyone to complete this professional training in the U.S.? You know, in my elevator speech, when I present for my second TEDx, I had to educate my curator on this very topic. So... Occupational therapy, in its view, is more like a field that we work with people from all ages. It could be something as young as like people in the neonatal intensive care unit, which is that neonatal ICU, pretty much. So it's like from zero, but I also have worked with patients as old as like 104. So it's a very broad range. So we could work on something like sensory integration, uh, mental health, uh, sometimes there's physical rehab stuff, like sometimes it's just like, let's say they have an injury from like a hip fracture or 
knee replacement, and it's like, hey, maybe we, there's a huge time to go back. Uh, see, I'll say like learning how to do a toilet because sometimes like those injuries happen, and then they have to do some alternative methods for the time being to use the toilet or dress themselves because sometimes like they may not be able to bend their hips to when they had to wear their clothes or sometimes it would be something as basic like uh, e eating because sometimes let's say somebody has a stroke then they might have to learn how to use another arm like the dominant arm to know how to eat or sometimes wipe their face so it could also be something like let's say uh a patient has been in the hospital system for a long time or in my setting for a while but then they have desire to go home so we can also in terms of trying to get back to the community so that we can have us give them a smoother transition to go home per se and in terms of training i would say typically in the u.s it would be about three years in terms of if you start from the master's program or and in the US there are some programs that's called a three plus two program so what that means is like the patient person will start from the bachelor's program and they will be in the program for three years for the bachelor for the undergrad and then for the two years of graduate program they will study the same courses as the master's students so pretty much I would say is like if they start from the bachelor's program in the US, quote unquote, they do save themselves one year in terms of education, so to speak. But of course, we also have the education for assistance, which are for, let's see, the point of entry right now is an associate degree. And mostly they can get it from a local community college, although some institutions for this degree are also private as well. And the same length of time is also around two and a half, three years. What obstacles have you encountered during your career so far? Mm, as I mentioned before, I was diagnosed with autism during my second, first and second year of occupational therapy school. So a month before I found out my diagnosis, I actually failed my clinical. And in our world is like we don't have that many second chances so in essence is like once i found my autism diagnosis as and then the fact that it's like i felt clinical in terms of hands-on clinical so basically is i was already behind my eight behind an able you know and then i also know that uh when i was transitioning from my undergrad degree, which was in statistics, and to transition from statistics to occupational therapy, it was a rough journey itself because the type of study method and the departmental grading system, and then the type of concepts that I learned, because like mathematics, it was very black and white versus like occupational therapy, like there's like so many different solutions and stuff. It's gonna be very creative. So I would say it's more like transitioning from having to be very analytical to something to somebody who needs to think on the feet often. Definitely, I would say it took me six months to like the field. And then I would also say like after I found I graduated with my clinical doctor degree, I'm a first job. 
but my first job did not turn out so well. And ironically enough, it was in pediatrics. And people thought it was like, oh, it's a good job on paper because like I got to work with a lot of autistic children. But that time it exposed some of, some of the difficulty I had. I mean, firstly, I will say like, like many first year practitioners in our field, the first year can often be a struggle and I was no exception to that rule, so to speak. So yeah, the transition from being a student to being a practitioner, that was a struggle. That was a struggle. And then keeping a job, that was, I would say, that was very different from doing my internships because typically my hands-on internship, it was three months if we were done full-time or maybe six months if we were done part-time per se. So yeah, it's like keeping a job is definitely a marathon and it took me a job to realize that. And then I think it's like because in pediatrics, I realized that I got to keep a job. So it actually exposed a weakness that many autistic individuals might associate with, which is playing with other people. And for me, in terms of playing with kids, that was definitely a struggle in itself. And then I would say it's like I spent a year trying to do private practice and that was not the most successful. And then I think it's like when I transitioned to the current setting I was in, definitely is, was like a big shift. But I would say it took me a month to actually get into the flow of the setting, to understand what it's about. And then it probably took me a few more months to graduate phase in to other essential duties I'm supposed to do as an occupational therapist in that setting. What settings do you prefer to work in? Actually, I prefer to work in the skin nursing facility setting I work in now. The reason is because of a few things. One, my strengths and weaknesses, it actually fit that setting a lot better. Secondly, I realized that I am not a morning person. As you can tell, the start time today, you know, we try to record this podcast. I try to ask for like 10 a.m. my time because I realized that I, I am not a very good morning person. Although, of course, I mean, I attend my conferences. I got to be a morning person and he's got to fake it. But yeah, typically I like to start my work at about 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. Because I know I'm not a morning person. And then another thing that I really like about my setting is like, is the vacation stuff. So like in terms of taking time off, because in the school setting or in many other settings, it's almost like you got to follow a calendar in terms of when I should be off. But for me, it's like, I think I like the fact that I can be flexible in terms of when to ask for time off. That was very huge. So for someone like me, it's like, in case I get overwhelmed, I definitely can take a day off for a mental health day. And in my setting, because there are other occupational therapy practitioners, so therefore, uh, I can get the feeling of, I can take a day off without feeling guilty, you know? And then the fact that is like, I'm not obligated to do a switch day, that when I take a time off, I think that's a plus. So I would say from a well-being standpoint, I think it's like, that's probably as custom made for me as possible. And of course, I would also say it's like the fact that I'm also involved in profession. 
So I need to take time off for those too. So I'm not as restricted in terms of doing that. That is also a plus. How did you get invited to be featured on TEDx Talk? And what motivated you to speak on this stage? Hmm. What motivated me to speak on this stage? Well, I would say I had a mentor when I was transitioning from being a student to a practitioner. So she was an occupational therapy assistant. And we had this mentor-mentee relationship for two years. And one of the biggest proponents of our relationship was getting me to put myself out there in public, like what I'm doing today. And and then I'll say the relationship that last two years because unfortunately she passed away due to a massive complication of stroke, heart attack, and just cancer. It's like it just hit her all at once. So yeah, when she passed away four and a half years ago, I decided to try to continue the her legacy the best way I can in my own interpretation. In terms of how he did get invited to TEDx, so I'll say what she did definitely was a start. But then it's like, I mean, since I have realized I'm on on the autism spectrum per se, I decided in my career is like, you know what, I'm pretty open about my diagnosis. I want to get as much support as I can for my career. So therefore, is I unintentionally, I built up a huge social media presence. And then because of that, I like was invited to speak at Tennis Grand Forks because one of the team planning team members on Tennis Grand Forks actually at that time was an occupational therapy student. And she checked out my Twitter profile and she told me, it's like, Bill, I noticed that you have done some awesome things in our profession. I also noticed that you are a very unique person in our field. And I would like to invite you to try out for my event at Tennis Grand Forks to speak. And then after an hour and a half of conversation and try to understand what the experience is supposed to be like, I said, go ahead nominate me is fine and then two weeks later I got an interview with the entire team from TEDx Grand Forks they asked me questions for half an hour and that evening they notified that I was in the program I was definitely very elated to get on TEDx Grand Forks and then after I finished TEDx Grand Forks I think I got the misconception that it's like it was a one and done deal because I heard this rules. I heard that when I met one of the organizers from another TEDx event at that TEDx Grand Forks because we had TEDx like a speaker mingle party, so it's like before party where the organizers and invited guests and speakers we had a social hour so to speak. And then the other organizer told me, it's like, oh, we, we, if we had known about you, we would have tried to invite you to speak. But then it's like, we couldn't because you were doing this already. So I had the misconception, it's like, oh, it's a one and done deal, you know? But then uh, how I got involved in TEDx Tube at Alvinos Bay, that was a mere coincidence. So what happened was, 
I attended TEDxLA in late 2016, and that was the first TEDx event I attended in the Los Angeles area. At that time, because I knew in the Hollywood area, just like this traffic lore in terms of downtown LA, it could be a chaos to get in and out of downtown LA. So my mom just suggested, it's like, hey, you know, it's so busy down there in Hollywood, and you know the location is very busy because, like, hey, you used to work there before and around there for the nursing home job you work with, you know. So I was like, why not take the subway or to, to get to the venue? I was like, okay, sure. So that's how I got there to the venue, and then after the TEDx LA event was over, I went back to the metro station. And to try to get somebody home. Not surprisingly, I met some attendees from that conference, and uh, like doing some small talk stuff, like we, like many TEDx TEDx attendees do sometimes, because we realize like, hey, you attended the event, you know, and then uh, we just did some small talk about how the event went, what we liked about the program, what we didn't like about the program, and then all of a sudden, like, one of the attendees said. He's like, hey, uh, my daughter is organizing a TEDx event, and I would like her to introduce herself, and because I know her event is looking for speakers, and then the daughter, who was my curator for my TEDx TEDx Youth Alamitos Bay event, she introduced herself, and then she says like, oh, I am looking for speakers. The theme for my event is uh, bridging gaps, and if you or you know somebody who might be interested for the event,、uh, please send them my way. And then I heard a little bit. I asked her some questions like what the event is and and other stuff. So I was like,、hmm, should I do it or should I ask somebody else to do it? And then I hear that、uh, there's a two-week turnaround period. I was like, dude. Nope. It's like it's very hard for somebody in my field to turn around in two weeks' time to give an idea that would fit the event. And then I also thought about one thing. You know, it's like I thought about myself almost like a basketball athlete for a second because I was like, hmm, that's my one shot to make history because I did some research. I did some informal research, like. How many occupational therapy student or practitioner has been on the TEDx stage for more than once? I was like, dude, I'll be an idiot if I if I pass up a chance in making history, you know. So after another speaker from event from the event, I mean, I would say eventual speaker from an event made his pitch. I was like, you know what? I gotta go for this. So I gave her my elevator speech for two to three minutes, and then she said, "Oh, sure, you can definitely get into the program. You know, just email me what your talk is about, and we definitely can do it." And I remember before before she left her for back home, I gave her my business card, and that's how the conversation gets started, and that's how I got on my second TEDx talk. You mentioned、uh, you were curating a TEDx event. What motivated you to, to take this bold step, and what obstacles have you encountered along the way, and how have you overcome them?
boy, there were definitely a lot of obstacles. I mean, I after I spoke my second TEDx talk, I in my heart I really wanted to do it, but the thing is I didn't really have a rationale to do it. So I will say. For almost a year, it has been brewing in my mind. So I have attended quite a bit of TEDx events around the LA area, so that I get to know the event experience from people in the Los Angeles area. And then a crucial thing that came up, I would say, because I went to the nearby high school in terms of where I live. So I actually went to Alhambra High School for my high school. And then I saw a post on the alumni page, and it says there was a very well-respected teacher. He actually taught me before in that high school, and he taught for that high school for forty years. Unexpectedly passed away in Utah, because that I guess he retired and he lived there, and he ended up passing away. I was like, wow, that's a shocker. And then that. Light bulbs and all of a sudden just went on my head. I was like, you know what? Maybe that's a good rationale for me to organize a TEDx event because, like, hey, you know, there's this teacher from my high school who taught for the high school for forty years, and over time, he, I know he was honored on the Los Angeles Times for two times during his tenure as a teacher. I was like, hmm. That's a very valuable member in society in the Alhambra area, so maybe I can use that angle to try to create a TEDx event. So then I was like, okay, let's try it. And then initially I recruited two alumni from my high school, and they were like, okay, let's see what this is all about. But then I think over time they realized like that's a lot of work because like I don't want to do this. But then it just still press on. They were like, you know what? I think that would be a good community touch to honor that teacher. But the, in terms of obstacles along the way, I would say like the application process just to get an event license that took me five months to get it. And then as I found out more and more about the rules, I was like, oh my god, I can't do crowdsourcing. I can't do uh. Let's see, I have a budget I gotta stick to. I cannot make it as big as I want because like, hey, you know what? It's almost like if I make a big budget and then all of a sudden like I don't raise enough money, that's like, hey, here's my financial responsibility to run the event. It's like that's a problem. And then I also realized like, uh, so in terms of raising monetary donations or the in-kind donations for the event, I was like, oh, people want a non-profit associated with the event. I was like, damn, I don't have one. So I was like, "Oh wow!" And then I realized all these all these other rules. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, it's so overwhelming. And then I think it got so overwhelming to a point. It's like, you know what? I cannot do this event by myself because it's so much responsibility, especially given that I have a forty-hour-a-week job, and then with my professional activities. And speaking of professional activities, I try to ask my professional associations for support. And then one of the things they told me was like, "Bill, you gotta be very careful because like, if you you could go down a slippery slope in terms of socially because 
you know, if you're asking for support for the event, but then you are also help working for us, I mean, you're serving a leadership position for us, as like, the way you communicate on how you want support, that is also gonna be very tricky. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> so I was like, so I think how I overcome it, one is definitely I gotta know how to delegate to my peers. And then secondly, is like, of course, I gotta use the autism community for support. So what I mean by that is, I was very fortunate to have a couple autism nonprofit that comes forward and in the LA area, particularly, or Cal I would say South Cal, for, sorry about that. I would say South Cal area has come forward and say, hey, you know what? This is very interesting. And we would like our nonprofit to be associated with your TEDx event. I think that would be a wonderful touch to bring some publicity to our nonprofit. So I was glad that it's like, even though I made some calls to the fiscal sponsor directory on, on the list, I mean, that's the nonprofit organizations on the fiscal sponsor directory. I mean, that didn't come through, but I was glad the autism community actually came forward and support me in this venture as a fiscal sponsor. And then I also used my social skills in terms of like networking with other curators to so that I can ask them some questions for some pointers on how to make the event better. And also use social media in terms of recruit other speakers. So I was very fortunate that I can overcome my obstacles in terms of running this event. Even though I would say definitely is like running a TEDx event, it's almost like a hundred steps task, so to speak. But I was able to break it down in terms of making it one step at a time and try to divide and conquer and I would say that was probably the biggest strategy to help me overcome the many things that come along my way. And of course, I was also very thankful for my occupational therapy community because like the meeting I'm going to later today, I couldn't do it without people in my own professional community because it's like, I know one person can only do so much, but like if I share my concerns, share my problems, I know it's like, somebody because I have a vast network, I was very grateful that they can provide support in that way as well. Even if it is not the monetary donations, but they may give me somebody who can lead me somewhere, so to speak. You claim that you're an autism self-advocate. How do you balance your identity with your day job? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Because while I studied in occupational therapy schools, one of the things I learn very immediate I would say immediately was like if I sign my name name with my professional initial, professional initials on something like a paper document or a printed document I know I'd be accountable for what I said so same thing I felt that it really applies to my social media so therefore actually I checked out some other autism self-advocate posts on social media I saw like see them like they post research, they 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 go over and sometimes they go over and over to re repeatedly share points from blogs or their message or sometimes they post like very frequently. I was like mm, that I cannot do that because as a professional 
one's like, well, if I were to share research, I gotta be very careful about sharing my research. Any research related to autism, because like, hey, you know what? I know people in public, they see me as a health professional first. So therefore, I cannot just look at any, uh, any random research and say, hey, you know what? This is good research on autism. It's like, hey, you know what? I gotta look at these research more critically than other autism self-advocates per se, you know? And then secondly, I would say it's like the frequency of my post. I mean, yes, I definitely want to share pretty frequent about promoting my profession. But at the same time, in terms of autism, I gotta be very careful because as a professional, I know I'm not supposed to like spam people's account, people's news feeds on social media because like, hey, you know what? that would be not very good on my part. So in terms of professionalism standpoint, so I really had to modify it. And then I realized also over time was like, sometimes the my autistic self and my professional self, they actually don't coexist. So actually I had to find, when I share on social media, actually I, I just share messages that the professional self and my autistic self, they coexist. And that way, I can share those messages on social media. So I did think more carefully about my social media content in terms of the quality of content I share as well. And then, oh yeah, another one I would say is like, in my workplace, in terms of a professionalism standpoint, before my TEDx talks, I actually had to be very careful that I cannot mention to my patients that I'm autistic because it's, I heard that's a rule in terms of professionalism per se, because I got in trouble once in my clinical internship, I got in trouble once in my first job in a pediatric setting. But then now, because of the TEDx talks I've done, I was like, well, if the patients find out and say, hey, they, we find it out from the internet, it's like, well, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, it's fair game. If you find out this kind of stuff from this, it's like, I didn't say it, they just did the research, you know, I did not confirm or deny what they found. So like, well, so that's one thing I've learned to deal with as well. Before the interview, uh, you mentioned to me, you contribute to an upcoming book in your community on autism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, no problem. So it's actually an upcoming book on autism. I actually had the third edition of that book and basically that book is sort of like a reference resource book on autism and it discusses about autism across the lifespan so to speak and when i had the last edition of that book i read the book and i was like uh where is the autistic perspective from that book so I remember, so then I approached the editor two years ago at one of the conferences I attended. I was like, uh, how come there is no autistic adult perspective in that current edition? And then the editor was like, okay, I'll get back to you later on that because the thing is like, that's a very interesting constructive criticism. And then I think earlier this year, uh, the editor came back to me and was like, you know what, we thought about it for a while. And your point was very valid. 
And then she said to me, it's like, we also understand this is a very rushed project on our part because the book is about to be out, but would you be interested to write a forward for us? And then I was like, sure. I was like, because I know that's like, well, if I push it now, then the book won't happen in another four to five years. So I was like, sure, I'll definitely want to collaborate with you, even though I know it's like I was very busy, but I was like, you know what, for the autism community, I gotta do it. So after, and then as I was writing a portion of the book, I was like, dude, I gotta make sure my perspective was broad enough. So then I approached two other colleagues who also have autism as well, and I said, hey, I'm doing this project. I would like you guys to proofread it and do some perspective checking. I was glad that she provided feedback before I actually sent it back to the editor for a review. And later they told me, it's like, when the book was about to be published, they told me, it's like, you know what? We made an exception for you. Because, like, normally the book should be in press, like, in print already. But because of you and what you've done in the profession, we decided it's like, you know what, it's like, he will be a very, you will be a very good addition to the book. So it's like, we decided to postpone the publishing date because of you. And then as I later found out, when I signed the release form to be published on that book, I realized Stephen Shore was also on that book as well. So I was glad that they actually took that constructive criticism and they included more autistic adult perspective in justice. Why do you choose to be a leader in your profession? Oh yeah, so when I started occupational therapy school, I would say I was a year and a half unemployed. I, I would say one of my pitfalls during my undergrad days was I didn't network enough. I didn't do enough extracurricular things. So when I got into occupational therapy school, I was like, you know what? I got to be more involved. I got network better. So when I got into occupational therapy school, I decided I was a changed person. I got to be involved. So I tried to get involved with student government, but then get in a position. I, I tried to, actually tried to run for a national association position, but I didn't get it. But it was out of that experience in, in terms of running for a national association position where I got to met, got to connect with a friend of mine that turned out to be a best friend of mine. I mean, at that time, she was from a different school, but then we ran for the same position and she won. And I would say, timing-wise, that was actually a few months before I found out my autism diagnosis, by the way. And then, I remember we met up in a conference in 2010, and we got to know each other a little bit more after the election. And then I think it was one of those conversations I shared to her about, like, hey, you know what, I deal with this diagnosis, autism diagnosis, I had a lot of self-doubts in my career, and she then turned back to me and said, hey, you know what, I'm gonna give you a pep talk. And she gave me a pep talk for an hour, an hour and a half. And after that, I was like, you know what, 
if I were to be successful in the profession, I really should give back. And then another motivation in terms of for me wanting to give back was, uh, so I disclosed my diagnosis to my occupational therapy department. Unfortunately, they weren't able to find an autistic occupational therapy practitioner for me. I would say, like, towards my second hands-on clinical that I was attempting to do, I had to bend on Facebook, and I was like, who the heck in occupational therapy has autism? And then a caregiver from the United Kingdom said, hey, you know, I am aware of this occupational therapist who has autism, and here's his webpage, you might want to contact him and see if he responds to you. And two to three weeks later, I got a reply from that occupational therapist, and we became friends since, especially when we find out that my journey was very similar to his journey back in the day. And then out of the experience, I was like, you know what, I felt like I went through some unnecessary detours throughout my journey. If I were to be a leader in my profession, I believe that I can definitely help more people like myself. But at the same time, of course, I also can inspire other occupational therapy students or practitioners who don't have autism because they realize like, hey, you know what? This guy's autism, but this guy's doing great things for the profession. Maybe I can do things better than he does or like as good as he does at least. So I would say it's like, through my journey as a leader, I was hoping that I can inspire others to do the same. Do you have anything else you want to add? Mm, I would say, uh, let's see. I would say a classic saying with autism, you know, if you meet a person with autism, you only know a person with autism. So that's, that saying is true because, like, in the clinical environment, you'd be very surprised to know that it's very, very unpredictable because sometimes it's like maybe kids don't show up or sometimes it's like a patient that you work with usually is very compliant, but all of a sudden that patient might have a bad day, maybe the patient all of a sudden is in a bad mood. It's like there's no way you can prepare for that, you know? So it's almost like, well, that's why it's like, I know in terms of the, sometimes like uh, there's some recommendations in terms of Autistic individuals, they should work in jobs that have a lot of structure, a lot of predictability. But sometimes, you know what? There are some of us who definitely can deal with unpredictability actually. So I'll say that's one. And then let's see, another one is like, you know what? Another one I would say is like, being a person who was very fortunate like on the spectrum, because like, hey, I can go to conferences that can be very overwhelming. I can handle social demands that are very high. I can like network with people very well now. And then I realized like, hey, you know what? It's almost like the Warren Buffett. I'm like a Warren Buffett in terms of the awesome world. It's like, you know what? Hey, I know I'm very rich in terms of my social experiences goals. And I'm very fortunate to do what I do. I feel like it's very important for those people who are very fortunate to give back to the autistic community, per se. Like, the re a recent experience I had was, actually I went to India for 
an autism conference, and it was a multidisciplinary conference. And I had been wanting this kind of opportunity for a long time because I focused so much on my professional career. So when that opportunity came about, I was like, yes, I really want to give back because I really want to inspire people in the autism community, whether it's parents or other individuals on the spectrum. I want to say, hey, you know what? Your kid or you can do this. It's, sometimes it takes a lot of hard work and it takes the gotta create your own luck so to speak but eventually you will get there so yeah it's like having an opportunity like that I think it's like I believe that's what I would say the people who have accomplished a lot in the in their own field so to say they should give back to the other community to inspire others I'll say that's my two take home points well I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today and uh, we appreciate you sharing so much with us. You're welcome. Now we have some announcements. We are now affiliated with The Art of Autism, a nonprofit organization that empowers and connects individuals within the autism community through participation in the arts. We have similar visions in that we promote successes from people with autism. Part of the proceeds from our merchandise will not only help us, but will help The Art of Autism with their cause. And then next week, we will hear from Sasha at Special Kids Company. That's it for this episode. Until next time.